All right. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Good evening. And welcome to class number three, the somewhat belated class number three after our holiday gap uh, of last week um, of, of the Return of the Shadow class. Uh, glad to get back into Return of the Shadow uh, and especially relieved as I return to find that we are totally not a class behind or anything. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely not. Just wanted to make sure that that's perfectly clear. Um, so um, one thing that uh, I wanted to point out, I know we normally have the um, the discussion thing, <laughs> the discussion in the chat room uh, for you guys who want to talk amongst yourselves. Uh, of course, if you want to talk to me, uh, I mean, you know, make observations that, uh, that I can see, uh, obviously you enter that uh, into the... Uh, uh, into the chat box here in GoToWebinar. If you are looking to, um, oh shoot, sorry, I was just realizing, just realizing something. Uh, I, I'm still getting used to new things, uh, new interfaces and stuff between, uh, this class and the, uh, the new, class that I started last night, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings class, there are a whole bunch of new things uh, that I'm all trying to monitor all at the same time here, so, uh, and new systems that I'm sort of sometimes using and sometimes not using, it's all kind of complicated and blowing my mind a little bit, I'm trying to keep everything straight, so, okay, all right, fine, we're good, we are totally fine now, um, so, as I mentioned, last night I did my first, uh, session of, um, Oh, I didn't even finish what I was saying before with the chat room, though. Here's poor Arthur. Um, so, yeah, so the chat room is kind of weird. Uh, like, something weird happened to the link. It sort of vanished, and now it's back, but it's not fully back. My theory about that is that the chat room link must have sustained a concussion, and its wife sent it straight to bed and wouldn't let it do anything. And then, But then it kind of came back later on, but it's still not 100% okay. It's possible, I'm projecting there, but I think it's still a pretty good theory. So, um, anyway, uh, we're, we're, that's, it's there though. If you scroll down to the bottom, it's not, it's just not bouncing like usual, right? It's not been medically cleared to bounce. It's still going through the concussion protocol, but it's there, uh, and can, uh, and can definitely be used. So, uh, so there you are. Um, by the way, my head is fine now. I took very minor concussion and I'm totally, I'm totally back. I've even been medically cleared for contact sports again. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Um, anyways, <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, so, 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 so there is a chat room for you guys who want to chat amongst yourselves. Uh, if you are on Twitch, if you're watching this on Twitch, which is our overflow room, then that's great. Welcome. Um, I, I can see the Twitch chat too. The Twitch chat tends to go by pretty fast for me. I can't promise to keep up with everything. Uh, if you want to join in and make sure I can see your comments, you can, uh, you can join the, uh, you, there's still room in the, in, in the net mood, in the go to webinar session. Um, but, uh, I'll try to monitor the, the Twitch chat as well. That's what I just about forgot there and uh, went back in to do. So, okay, we're good now. Let's, a couple quick announcements first. Um, last time, uh, uh, last uh, night, 
one day ago today, uh, I started my first session of the new Lord of the Rings class that I'm doing, exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, where I'm going to be talking my way through with making no apologies of any kind for how long I take. Um, for those of you who weren't there, um, I, I got about a third of the way through the stuff that I want to talk about uh, from chapter one of The Fellowship of the Ring. I'm going to spend at least three weeks, I think, on chapter one. Uh, at this rate, uh, I project uh, to be finished with the Lord of the Rings, definitely, I think, sometime in 2019, um, at latest, uh, really. Um, so before before uh, uh, we start the year 2020, I'll, I'll absolutely be done with that series. I feel fairly confident in saying that. Um, so, uh, okay, anyway, so that's, um, that's the, 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 that's the deal. It's the situation there. Um, uh, in the exploring the Lord of the Rings class, it was really fun. We did our field trip afterwards. We went and met uh, Gaffer Gamgee, uh, and in particular, something that I'd never really thought about before. We were had we because we just finished looking at the conversation between Sandy and the Miller and uh, and Gaffer Gamgee, and so we we're looking at you know with the, with uh, the games. One of the fun things about Lotro, right? They've they've they they model that place really closely on Tolkien's own drawings, and you actually go in and can kind of walk around. Uh, you can actually see uh, the the some of the really close connection, actually, between Sandyman and the Gaffer, how the Gaffer's house actually looks down over Sandyman's mill and everything right there. It was, it was all it was all pretty fun. Um, so anyway, that was really great. And we had a huge turnout. We had like we had 400 people uh, who attended that class live. It was kind of shocking, actually. Um, so uh, it was great. So I hope you uh, those of you who came had fun. Um, those of you who weren't able to make it live, the, it's up on YouTube. I think it's up everywhere. It's up on YouTube. I believe the audio file was posted to the Tolkien Professor podcast stream um, and both audio and video and the slides were posted on iTunes U. So that should be that should be all set. Um, anyway, so that was really fun. I encourage you to, it won't take you long to catch up with me reading wise, <laughs> right? So it's all good. Uh, well, so that's going to be a weekly thing on Tuesday nights. Um, and the other announcement I wanted to make is something I've mentioned on social media, but I wanted to make sure that nobody misses it. Starting on Thursday, January 12th, uh, Tom Shippey is teaching a seminar. So you'll remember the uh, Secret Vice seminar we had uh, with Andrew Higgins and Demetra Femi, editors of A Secret Vice. Um, and they were talking about that that talk and the the research that they'd been doing in the recent book that was just published uh, on Tolkien's uh, you know philological work and language invention. Um, well, Tom Shippey is going to be talking about Tolkien's Beowulf um, edition, the, the Beowulf edition that was just published a couple years back. Um, and it's going to be really, really cool. Of course, everybody knows Tolkien's famous essay on uh, you know the monsters and the critics. The you know one of the most Possibly, I mean, I've heard it called one of the most influential essays in the humanities in the 20th century. It was really, uh, uh, it was really very important. Um, and uh, what's what's really interesting? Um, what's uh, uh, What's going to be really fun about Shippey's seminar that he's going to be doing uh, starting next week um, is he's going to be looking at Tolkien's notes and thoughts, uh, you know, both his translation and his his notes on Beowulf that are published in that text and showing us how sort of like what Tolkien really thought about Beowulf, right? And some ways in which he's actually changed his mind and is kind of turned around from what he wrote originally. So looking at kind of the relationship between the famous things that he said about Beowulf and uh, the things that he kind of shows in these things that were published kind of from uh, behind the scenes. So it's uh, it's really cool. So, uh, Diego, how 
you sign up for it. Basically, it's going to be session, a session just like this. Um, so we'll, we'll be posting the links for that soon so you can register. It's open registration. Um, we'll do like we're doing now, like we've been doing with this class. We'll do like an overflow room in on our Twitch channel for those. Um, and uh, there's no cost for it. It's free. We do for, for our seminar series because uh, those those are those do cost us uh, more money than usual to, to, to put on. So we are asking for a, we have, we have a suggested donation of $20, uh, for people who are watching it. Um, again, it's not required. It's free, but, but suggested donation of $20 to help us cover, uh, uh Dr. Shippey's honorarium and, you know, to, to make sure to thank him for his time, which is so special to be able to, uh, to get. If you don't know what I'm talking about, like if you've never actually gotten to hear, uh, from Tom Shippey, just do it. Tom Shippey is like the godfather of Tolkien studies. He is uh, not only really the greatest living Tolkien scholar other than Christopher Tolkien, second greatest, I suppose, to Christopher Tolkien, but um, uh, not only that, he is just incredibly funny and charming and is just, is just absolutely wonderful. Again, if, you, if you've never sat in on a Shippey class, you, you, absolutely, you absolutely must. It's, uh, it's tremendously fun. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, good. And, um, and, go- oh, and Josh, thank you for reminding me. Yes, I was going to, uh, um, uh, I was going to, uh, mention that as well and almost forgot. This week we're having a special, uh, faculty roundtable from the Signum faculty and students, uh, talking about, uh, uh, Rogue One and Fantastic Beasts, uh, doing a Star Wars Harry Potter, uh, discussion. Um, and so th- that's going to be later on this week. If you go to signumuniversity.org, uh, and scroll down a little bit, you'll see event pages for both the Shippy uh, seminar and for the, uh, um, the one fantastic rogue beast discussion, uh, that is going to be, uh, going on later this week. So anyway, I, uh, strongly, uh, uh, encourage you to look into both of those things. All right. Well, let us get moving and, uh, and, uh, get back into Return of the Shadow here. So, um, okay. Let's, um, uh, let's do this. So tonight I want to, you'll remember, or maybe you don't, I don't know. Two weeks ago seems like eight years for me. I can like barely even remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Um, and this is what I, I've talked about this before in the context of the history of Middle Earth classes, right? Whenever, whenever, you know, Christopher Tolkien is talking about, cause you know, often Tolkien will have said later on in his life, he will have made a positive declaration of like the date at which he wrote something or the order in which he wrote something or even things like, oh, I composed that on the typewriter and like, yeah, there, then we find a handwritten manuscript that seems pretty clearly to predate the typescript. So, you know, I mean, he screws up about that kind of thing all the time. And let me just say, like, I find it amazing that he's accurate, even as great a percentage as he is. Like, I can't even remember what I did two weeks ago. So the idea that he's like, back 40 years ago when I was doing that, uh, here's what I'm pretty sure happened. Um, so, uh, okay. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the departure of Bingo and his good friends, Odo and Frodo, or Frodo and, wait, who, who, what did the other guy's name change to, right? We had Bingo and Frodo and Marmaduke, I know, is whom they're, whom they're going to, uh, to go hang out with. Um, uh, uh, good old Marmaduke, uh, Brandybuck. I know Matt was saying earlier that he was, uh, he's been permanently scarred by the Hobbit names, Bingo and Marmaduke. Uh, but, uh, 
Uh, anyway, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says she'll never forget Oboe Tuk Tuk. I agree, Nancy. Oboe Tuk Tuk is, is one of my very favorite Hobbit names, too. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway. Okay, okay, okay. So they were setting off and they didn't know where they were going. And so we were looking at sort of this, you know, when Tolkien sits down to continue the story, right? The, I, the concept of the party, right, you know, kind of came first. And this is the sort of the launching off point of the sequel, which we talked about in the first class. And then in the last class, we were looking at like, so where do we go, right? What happens next? Um, and he obviously didn't really know. And we came at the very end of class to the, to the sort of the pivotal turning point, right? And that's the moment at which Gandalf catches up with them on the road as the three of them are traveling. And let's um uh let's let's go back and look at that again for a second because I want to I want to make sure to uh refresh our memories about uh about this. I won't talk about this nearly as much as I talked about it last time, um but uh just to make sure we're remembering this important scene. I think we had better get out of sight, said Bingo, or you fellows at any rate. Of course, it doesn't matter very much, but I would rather not be met by anyone we know. They, written above at the same time, Odo and F, ran quickly to the left down a little hollow beside the road and lay flat. Bingo slipped on his ring and sat down a, very f- sat down a few yards from the track. The sound of hoofs drew nearer. Round a turn came a white horse, and on it sat a bundle. Or that is what it looked like, a small man wrapped entirely in a great cloak and hood, so that only his eyes peered out, and his boots in the stirrup below. The horse stopped when it came level with Bingo. The figure uncovered its nose and sniffed, and then sat silent as if listening. Suddenly, a laugh came from inside the hood. Now, notice, to this point, the descriptions that Tolkien is doing, it seems to me, right, that this is designed to be ominous, Right, it's designed to be suspicious. You know, we're 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 getting some suspense here in this paragraph. Like, what is this thing? Who is this thing? Right. Notice the kind of impersonal nature of the description. It's a bundle on horseback. Right now, Gandalf was described as a little old man in uh, um, in in The Hobbit. So we still have you know Gandalf as a little old man. He's not tall. Right. Um, and uh, so, but and apparently he must be like all hunched down in something. Anyway, he's small for his horse, right? And he just looks like a bundle on the back of a horse. Um, and again, there's there's clearly mystery here, wrapped entirely in a great cloak and hood, so that only his eyes peered out. Like, what is it? Who could it possibly be? Uh, and his boots in the stirrups below. And then it it comes level, and then we we see a nose, right? Emerges. Gandalf has a long nose. It's described in in uh, uh, in, in 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 the Hobbit again. And uh, and the sniffing, right? The sniffing is ominous, right? Like who is or what is it is attempting to 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 find them by scent, right? Um, so even from the beginning, I would argue, or or at least I, I would suspect that Tolkien does have in mind something. Um, it, it's it doesn't turn out to be something dangerous, right? But that possibility is is sort of there. Right. Um, Is this uh, is this an actual danger that has caught up with them? And clearly, you know, version number one. Right. Is uh, is no. Turns out uh, turns out that it's just a false alarm. So where are we here? Okay, sorry. Um, Bingo, my boy, said Gandalf, throwing aside his wrappings. You and your lads are somewhere about. Come along now and show up. I want a word with you. 
He turned his horse and rode straight to the hollow where Odo and Frodo lay. "'Hello, hello,' he said. "'Tired already? Aren't you going any further today?' At that moment Bingo reappeared again. "'Well, I'm blessed,' said he. "'What are you doing along this way, Gandalf? I thought you had gone back with the elves and dwarves. And how did you know where we were?' "'Easy,' said Gandalf. "'No magic. I saw you from the top of the hill, and knew how far ahead you were. As soon as I turned the corner and saw the straight piece in in front was empty, I knew you had turned aside somewhere about here. And you have made a track in the long grass that I can see at any rate when I am looking for it.' Notice how, again, in version one of this passage, he, the move that Tolkien makes as narrator here is immediately to anticlimax, right? Comical anticlimax. I mean, what looks like this ominous and mysterious and possibly threatening figure is not only just revealed to be Gandalf, um, but again, it's sort of the, 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 the narrative move is to continue to sort of pull back from that moment of like mystique and and uh, and 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 suspense right and uh, see no magic right it's um it's uh i just saw you from a distance right catching up with you um it's, it's, which is interesting to me it's it's interesting to me that he makes that move because because based on the manuscripts that we see so far, he doesn't have any idea of where he's going, right? So, I mean, is he setting something up with this? Is he, you know, like, what is the sort of the the, the, the near... Is he kind of teasing us or himself, right? Like, an adventure is going to happen. Nah, nah, just, just kidding. It's not really an adventure, right? It's just Gandalf, right? Um, okay, that's kind of... That's kind of, um, that's kind of interesting, Um and uh, yeah, Diego was thinking along the same, uh, a same, uh, uh, the same lines that it uh, it does seem to be setting the stage for a dangerous situation, and then not really so much. Carrie, uh, Carrie Gross, and and uh, Mary Dole are both saying they like the sort of pseudo pseudo Sherlockian monologue by Gandalf. Right? It was elementary, right? Of course, it was trivial to find you and figure out exactly where you were. Um, one would ask, why is he sniffing? in the first place, right? Like, why the sniffing, right? I mean, if, if he didn't, if he in fact was using deductive reasoning in order to find them, right, coupled with his own observations because he saw them from a distance, um, why was he even, was he making a show? Uh, you know, was he, um, was he like trying to freak them out or something? Uh, <laughs> Kate and Kimber are both suggesting allergies, right? Possibly Gandalf has hay fever. You can't rule it out. Um, <laughs> Tomas thinks it's a joke that uh, turns out that everybody but Smaug recognizes Hobbit scent. Actually, right? That's kind of that's kind of like the joke at the end of the Hobbit, right? Is, it, is you know the dragon can't recognize Hobbit scent, but everybody else can. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yes. And the joke, Matthew. I think you made that joke last time. You know, it smells like hobbits, right? To mimic the "smells like elves" uh, line that Bilbo delivers uh, uh, in the Hobbit. So again, where was this going to be going? What was the, you know, was he kind of building some kind of momentum? Is there foreshadowing with like the apparently ominous figure that catches them up from behind? The idea that Gandalf comes in at this moment seems to make perfect sense. I mean, as we talked about last time, we need an adventure. Right. And Gandalf is the adventure maker. Right. He's the he's the the one, you know, adventures spring up out of the grass when he comes by. So uh, and of course, they're in the grass, ironically. Right. When when and you know, they're the ones who spring out of the grass. 
whatever. Anyway, the point is, uh, Gandalf as as story maker, right? Um, that seems to be the role that he's being put in again here. So it makes total sense from a Hobbit perspective that Gandalf coming along is the thing that would happen here in order to precipitate the adventure. Not that it seems very clear what the adventure is going to be, right? And Gandalf certainly doesn't give any hint or suggest that there's anything weird, significant, pressing, urgent, you know, about his errand or his seeking them or anything. He's just, it's a, he immediately adopts the same kind of jocular teasing tone that the three hobbits were, have been using amongst themselves, right? They're on a lark and so is Gandalf apparently. Um, so, but then of course we get, and this I think was the last, uh, passage we looked at last time, the momentous revision, Right. Round the turn came came a white, changed to black horse, and on it sat a bundle, or that is what it looked like, a small, changed to short man, wrapped entirely in a great added black cloak and hood, so that only his eyes peered out, changed to, so that his face was entirely shadowed. Right. So now we have, it's like that, that germ of the suspenseful encounter, right, that, that sort of... Uh, the, 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 the shadow has become reality, right? Um, uh, and again, I'm not trying to say this is totally, obviously, what Tolkien's mindset was, but again, it, it looks as if Tolkien had decided, right? Um, we definitely, uh, we should actually just make, instead of making it a, a, a sort of a fake adventure, you know, sort of uh, a, a fake suspense that turns out to be a joke, let's make it the real thing, right? So he changes white to black, and off we go, right? Um, now, Arthur, you make a really great point. Arthur asks, were the wraiths described as short in the published work? I always pictured them as Darth Vader-sized. Uh, yes, one does. Well, they they are called... The, the, the hobbits see them as big people. They definitely categorize them as humans, not hobbits, right? Um, that's the, 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 the clear thing. Now, they don't see them... I don't think any hobbit, any of the main hobbits, see them dismounted. Um, and when they're dismounted, they're like crouching and sniffing along the ground. Um, so they're never described as being very, very tall. Um, certainly not in the initial chapters when we first meet them. Um, but uh, it is, but I agree, Arthur, that's an interesting point, right? The, that he's, um, instead of a small man wrapped entirely in a great cloak, he becomes the wraith, or whatever it is, the black rider, becomes a short man wrapped entirely in a great black cloak. Now, I just corrected myself there because, of course, in this paragraph, we can't prove that it's a wraith yet, right? Um, what, What we're going to be looking at today is how once this idea of the adventure comes in, once we have now Frodo, excuse me, Bingo. Well, Frodo is overtaken as well, uh, because he's with Bingo, right? Um, Bingo, Frodo, and Odo, once they're overtaken by this mysterious black rider, um, we begin to kind of fill in the story, right? And uh, and and we get a lot of backstory fill in about who these writers are, um, and uh, and then of course the 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 more distant story and 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 ultimately their connection to uh, to Bilbo's ring, um, yeah, yeah. So um, so yeah. So try to try to. Uh, yeah, see, Veronica, Veronica, you're th- uh, Veronica is saying, uh, you know, that the, they are, you know, the, the ring rays were kings of men. So I think they were taller than lesser men. That absolutely stands to reason. That feel, falls very much in line with what we see Tolkien doing in lots of other places later on. And indeed, the, the Lord of the Ring Rays will be 
you know, not be called a short man later on uh, when we come to meet him, like in the Return of the King or or or, or elsewhere. But but try to be careful. We're not there yet, right? We are we are miles and miles away from that kind of identification of the ring rates. And when we're looking at the development of Tolkien's thought uh, in these manuscripts, it's extra important for us not to jump ahead, right? Because Tolkien clearly didn't know that. Um, that is. We, we, we need to be careful not to bring the things that we know Tolkien will figure out later on and import them here as if Tolkien was thinking them from the beginning. We need to see, based on the evidence of the text that we have here, what we can be sure Tolkien knew, right? Tolkien had figured out at the time because a lot of the stuff that, um, is, you know, that, that is there gets worked in backwards, right? You know, he, 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 he ends up kind of retconning um, the whole thing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Kate asks an interesting question. Kate Neville asks, how much black was there <clears throat> in The Hobbit? <clears throat> the, um, the main thing is Mirkwood. Um, but, and Kate, but it's more than just lack of light. Um, the most notable thing about blackness in Mirkwood is the fact that it's not only is it super dark in there, um, uh, a dark black place and the home of dark black things, as Pippin calls it in the Two Towers, uh, eventually. Um, but it's the second part that I would emphasize. It's not just a dark black place, but it's the home of dark black things. Um, everything in there is black. Right, not only the spiders, uh, but the squirrels, right, and the bats, and uh, um, the river, right. I mean, uh, the 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 there's more of the blackness. Um, <laughs> Josh asks, are there black kingfishers in the woods of uh, of Mirkwood? Who knows, Josh? There might be, right? Um, uh, uh, Josh, of course, quoting the sort of the jest that Faramir makes. Uh, black butterflies, Erica. Very good. Exactly. Exactly. Arthur was re- remembering that as well. Um, so, so there's definitely more to the blackness of Mirkwood than the than the lack of light. Um, so this kind of association between all black things and something that is ominous and evil, or at least corrupted, right? Uh, sort of within the zone of influence of a dark and evil thing, which is what we already saw in Mirkwood, right? It was it was the presence of the ne- even in the published Hobbit, it's the it's the influence of the of the necromancer uh, of Mirkwood, which makes the wood into Mirkwood. Remember, it's it's the, the, they call it green, uh, Greenwood again after he gets kicked out at the very end. The elves do. Um. Okay. Okay. Um. So, I can't ask, is this the first association of black with people? Yes, I don't remember other people wearing all black like this in The Hobbit. No, I can't think of any. Um, yeah. Um, okay, good. All right, so um, so let's let's... Let's carry on. This is now when he rewrites the scene. So first we, 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 we can see him like mid-thought, right? Having just written as much as he wrote of that Gandalf passage that we read, he then goes back and makes an emendations to the text, transforming Gandalf into a black rider, right? I won't say a ring wraith yet, but a black rider anyway. And now here's how the black rider goes on in the revised version after he now is running with this idea. 
When it came on a level with Bingo, the horse stopped. The riding figure sat quite still, as if listening. From inside the hood came a noise as of someone sniffing to catch an elusive scent. The head turned from side to side of the road. At last the horse moved on again, walking slowly at first, and then taking to a gentle trot. Bingo slipped to the edge of the road and watched the rider until he dwindled into the distance. He could not be quite sure, but it seemed to him that suddenly, before they passed out of sight, the horse and rider turned aside and rode into the trees. Okay. Um, one thing, of course, that really jumps out at me, um, and again, this, this I, I would kind of put this in the category of, like, Tolkien never forgets the stuff that he wrote in earlier drafts. Like, the y- you can revise and change stuff, but, like, he never absolutely kills it. Remember the line that um, Pippin delivers in the published Fellowship of the Ring when he's talking to Frodo after this incident and Frodo is describing it. And Pippin says, your talk of, of, uh, of, of black riders with invisible, you know, with invisible, you know, sniffing with with invisible noses has unsettled me. The invisible nose is the line that I was just thinking of that I think is really funny, right? Because on the one hand, um, you know, the the absence of a face, right? The complete invisibility of the face is, is a really significant and interesting point, but it's especially interesting knowing in that first version, right, when the when the would-be mysterious writer shows up and sniffs, his nose is, in fact, visible. <laughs> it's the only part of him that's visible. He pulls back his hood and sticks out his perfectly visible, in fact, prominently visible nose to sniff, right? So, like, the nose stays, but then... Uh, uh, but uh, but but it, but it becomes it becomes invisible, right? And Hugo, you're right. We don't get the peering eyes, right? The, uh, the, that behind the nose, we had the sense of a face, even though we couldn't make out the face uh, within it, right? So, um, uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, so we have now the complete invisibility, or at least I won't say invisibility non-visibility, right? They just don't see anything of the face. It's just they see the head turning inside the hood, right? He hears the sniffing. Um, And it now sounds much more ominous, right? We had the ominousness before, and it's, um, it's, 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 it's much more ominous now. Um, Can somebody check, is that a typo? Road into the trees? It's got to be road into the trees. I likely messed that up. Yeah, it's a typo. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, rose into the trees. So, so it does sound like they're levitating, Veronica, and I, I was really pretty sure that that was not the case. Yeah, okay, that's a, it's a very, one of those really easy to make on the keyboard and hard to spot because it is, of course, a perfectly fair word. Yeah, um, and turned aside and rode into the trees, right? Okay, so... The ominousness, he continues the ominousness and then uh, uh, makes him act more suspiciously, right? Now, remember that we don't have any, neither we nor Bingo has the first reason to suspect that there's anything, this has anything to do with him, right? Is this, what is this thing? Is it looking for him? Why did it come up from behind, right? They just left Hobbiton behind. Does this dude come from Hobbiton, right? Doesn't look like he's from Hobbiton. Um... Is he pursuing them? He's clearly looking for something. Is it them? And if it's them, why? Right? No idea. It's all a complete, it's all a complete mystery. And this, again, this is, I think, 
very important. You know, we've got to, and this is why I'm trying to resist saying the ring rates or anything. Remember in the published um, Fellowship of the Ring, we get, of course, chapter two in between chapter one and chapter three, right? We get the shadow of the past. We get the whole story of the ring and the origins of the ring and and how it came to come to Frodo and what its powers are. And um, he actually does speak, Gandalf does speak, as he points out uh, somewhat primly to Frodo (laughs) in uh, uh, when they meet again in Rivendell, that he had did in fact mention the ring wraiths, uh, though though Frodo didn't... um, Remember that. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Anyway, this is all the, uh, the, the, that all sets the stage and prompts us. So basically, we the, the, a lot of the effect of the passage in the published text comes from dramatic irony, right? We know more than Frodo does, or at least than he's sort of remembering. Or it's it's really it's more like we and Frodo are kind of together, right? Frodo knows because he's been he's been told by Gandalf, Pippin and Sam, or at least Pippin is kind of unsuspicious, but Frodo has dark misgivings, which we as readers share, right? Um, Here, everyone's equally in the dark, right? We have no idea. Bingo has no idea. Um, uh, We have, uh, um, Brandon, there's not yet been a hint. I mean, this is all we have. This is literally it right here um, on this page. Um, There's no reason for us to suspect yet that it has anything to do with Bilbo's ring, right? Chapter one, the long-expected party chapter, none of the versions of the long-expected party chapter really hinted that. Of course, Hugo, yes, exactly, you're right. Uh, Tolkien has no idea. Um, Okay, so let's... uh, As Tolkien begins to flesh out this idea, um, uh, uh, we start getting some more stuff, right? This comes first in the conversation between Bingo and Frodo and Odo after their encounter with the Black Rider. And then, of course, it's in their conversation with the elves where things really kind of start to sort of percolate, um, it seems, as Tolkien is working this through. Here is a later version of the chapter when Bingo asks, you know, I I have no idea, and when Bingo says, I have no idea where that came from. um, And Frodo speaks up. Says, I have, though, said Frodo, who had listened intently to Bingo's description of the Black Rider. It reminds me of something I had almost forgotten. I was walking away up in the North Moor, you know, right up in the northern borders of the Shire, early last spring, when a similar rider met me. He was riding south, and he stopped and spoke, though he did not seem able to speak our language very well. He asked me if I knew where a place called Hobbiton was, and if there were any folk called Baggins there. I thought it very queer at the time, and I had a queer, uncomfortable feeling, too. I could not see any face under his hood. I never heard whether he turned up in Hobbiton or not. If I did not tell you, I meant to. You didn't tell me, and I wish you had, said Bingo. I should have asked Gandalf about it, and probably we should have taken more care on the road. Um, Now, first of all, notice this was a long time ago, right? Um, Early last spring. So months, it was like six months ago that, uh, that Frodo had had this. So even, you know, Bingo's comment that, um, we should have taken more care on the road, like what? Because I would have projected that six months from then we would, we might meet it when we leave after the party. Right. Um, that seems unlikely. Um, but anyway, you know, certainly they would have been perhaps slightly more, uh, uh slightly more more paranoid. Um, and yeah, Josh, the rider does seem, I won't say he took his sweet time, Josh, but he certainly did, uh, take a while to find Hobbiton. If indeed he ever found Hobbiton at all, no clear evidence that he did here. Um, but, uh, 
but in the north. And that, to me, uh, you know, Arthur, as you point out, is is a really interesting thing, right? Um, and the main piece that I take from that is negative. That is, it shows that Tolkien clearly did not have in mind where this writer eventually was going to come from, right? Um, I mean, unless his, you know, we're supposed to guess that his initial conception included the writer coming from the east, but getting south, been getting completely lost in the in the end, approaching the Shire from the north. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's just coming from the north, apparently. Um, I think that this shows Tolkien really has no idea who this writer is. And having no idea who this writer is, it makes sense to have him come from the north, right? Why? If you think about it, north makes makes a good deal of sense for several reasons. Now, careful again, right? Don't start thinking about Angmar and all that, because we don't know about Angmar yet, right? We've not done Angmar. We've not gotten there uh, in, uh, in, in working out all that stuff and those histories and things yet. Um, but we do have the Silmarillion, right? We do have the 1937 Quinta and all of its preceding things, and north is the direction where evil things come from, right? That's where Melkor's kingdom was. Uh, the necromancer had kind of fled, right? And so he's down sort of south and east, uh, or at least was, you know, when he was in Mirkwood before he got kicked out, and who knows where he is now. But uh, um, but anyway, you know, so maybe he's uh, maybe he's in the north, right? Maybe he's, uh, uh, that is, the necromancer is in the north, um, and that that's where... Tolkien was like briefly thinking about uh, situating him and having, you know, these writers come from maybe possibly. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, exactly. So not, not Angmar, but Angband, Josh, we do, we, we do have that. We do have that association with, uh, the North of, uh, of Middle Earth and Brandon. You're right. He has to have gotten the name Baggins from somewhere. It is very specific, right? So, this seems to be then the next element that comes in. So we have this direction, which again doesn't give us much in the way of positive information, but does kind of show us or suggest anyway what Tolkien hasn't yet worked out. Um, but more than that, um, we do get the asking people for Baggins, right? He's not just coming down, stirring up trouble, uh, looking for any stray hobbits on the road. Um, uh, you know, maybe he's getting tipped tips from talking foxes, right? Uh, where he might find stray hobbits that he can take in. Uh, maybe he's thinking of building a house made out of candy. I don't know, but no, clearly, you know, here we have him, uh, searching for Baggins. Why? Who knows? Right. We don't really at all know that yet. Um, so, uh, yes. Uh, now Josh and Kate Neville are both remembering that, uh, the North Moor is still going to stick. Again, Tolkien almost never totally gets rid of anything, right? Um, he's going to recycle the North Moor, and he's going to recycle the strange sight, the strange uh, sighting up in the North Moor. Of course, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a walking tree, right? That Sam hears about from his uh, uh, from 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 his cousin Halfast, um, not a black rider, but. Um, uh, but yeah, the idea that somebody saw something uh, uh, something funny up on the North Moor is not going to go away. Um, so uh, so yeah, and we have no idea. Yana Yana's asking how would the theoretical necromancer or you know Black Rider or whoever it is know of Baggins? No idea. We have no idea. But but again, that's one step further than we were in the last slide, right? In the last slide, we just had a random 
possibly faceless guy in black, short guy in black clothes who is acting suspicious and as if he were hunting somebody, hunting somebody and possibly them and down for reasons unknown to us or to anybody else, right? Now we have this idea of him hunting more clearly defined, right? He's not just stalking folks. He is specifically looking for Baggins. Why? How? We don't know. We don't know. Um, uh, let's keep looking at this unfolding. They could see, so they, they, they carry on traveling. They could see the village twinkling away down in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared into the folds of the darkened land and was followed by bywater beside its gray pool. When the light of the last farmhouse was far behind, peeping out of the trees, Bingo turned and waved a hand in farewell. Now we're really off, he said. I wonder if we shall ever look down into that valley again. I quoted this one. This is kind of an aside in looking at the sort of the development of the Black Rider idea, um, because I wanted to just kind of sort of pause for a second, because this is, I've mentioned it before, and it's going on constantly throughout um, all of these, uh, you know, so I don't have time to talk about every single time that it happens, but this I thought was a really neat example. Um, An example of a line that is kept almost word for word in the published work, right? But which has been completely recontextualized and whose significance is, alt- is, is, is completely changed, right? Um, and yet again, what we see is that it's just something that Tolkien, not, not something that he's added, not something that in a sense grew organically out of the new story he was writing, but something that has been naturalized within the new story that he was writing, and this is Tolkien's method, right? So the first time that Bingo, who will someday later mercifully be called Frodo, the first time that that character says, looks down into a valley and says, I wonder if we shall ever look down into that valley again, right? He's saying it cheerfully, right? Now we're really off, he says first, as if he had been really waiting for this. Like, you know, he seems eager, right, to get off. And now we're really off. I wonder if we shall ever look down into that valley again. It doesn't seem anxious about looking down into that valley again. It's not wistful, right? This is not like, ah, I leave the Shire behind, right? There's no whiff of that here. Um, It's like kind of curious. I wonder if we'll ever look down into this valley again. And we, yes, Arthur, that is the, uh, um, that's the, that's the one word that's different from the published edition, right? It's not Frodo in the published edition says, I wonder if I shall ever look down into that valley again, right? Um, He is reflecting on his own private quest, right? He knows he's going on the lamb, right? That's, that's when, when Frodo leaves the Shire, he's, he, he, he's, he's, he's going there and not back again as far as he can see, right? He's, he's going not to gain a treasure, but to lose one. uh, And he knows that he's, he's, he's going into danger and drawing danger after him, Right. Um, and so, therefore, he ha- there's this very important weight, right, to his last time in the Shire, um, to his looking around at his surroundings and, and recognizing, like, I'm, I'm giving all of this up, right? But, yes, all that is there, all that's added there in the published text, but all that stuff is added 
without changing anything. Just one word and the context of the sentence. Um, I, I just, again, I just, I, my mind is blown again and again as we're reading these early drafts and seeing moments like this that kind of drift up. Um, which A line which has a completely different tone, a completely different emphasis, and yet without changing, barely, just changing one word and recontextualizing it, he gives it this enormous powerful emotional weight that it just doesn't have in the original. He's just joking. He's he's happy. Um, yeah, yeah. And, of course, it's not just that one word was randomly changed. It's the pluralization. This is something that all three of them are sharing together, right? Well, four, if you count Marmaduke, right, whom they're still going to go catch up with. Um, they're in this together, and Arthur, you are right to remember that that was the difference in the first time we got the poem as well, right? The biggest change that we were noticing uh, in the Road Goes Ever On and On uh, poem um, that uh, that Frodo, not 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 the bingo, but the, the other Frodo, right, um, uh, actually recites is that it's it's it uses we, not I, right? This all, they they are in it all together uh, from the beginning here. That that sort of uh, distance that Frodo is trying to keep. Like I'm since I'm drawing danger after myself, I need to shield. Uh, my young friends uh, from this life of danger and homelessness that I am, you know, going into that I'm sort of exiling myself into uh, voluntarily, but I can't take them along on that, right? That struggle that we see Frodo have in the published text not totally non-issue, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh Kate Neville uh, is wonderfully remembering. So, G.B. Smith was the name of one of Tolkien's uh, childhood friends, one of the uh, the TCBS, the sort of the the foursome of uh, uh, guys who went to school together. Uh, and um, Kate is remembering a comment that Tolkien said to G.B. Smith when G.B. Smith asked about the meaning of the first day Arendel poem that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, and Tolkien's response when he was asked what the meaning of the poem was, was, I don't know. I shall try to find out. Right? And that, I think, Kate, you're right to remember that. This is what we can see. This is, to me, what's so much fun about these early chapters especially, to watch him. I mean, is he inventing? Yes. But he's, he's finding out. That's how he talks about it. Right? Throughout his life, he talked about it that way. Um, and it's really fun for me to see the way that that... Uh, the way that that comes about. So, so let's watch his, his continual discovery. Um, when we're uh, uh, before we meet the elves, still we get our second poem, right? The uh, the the this is the walking song that they sing. This is just one stanza of it. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadow to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. Then world behind and home ahead will wander back to fire and bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade. Fire and lamp and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed. The song is a much simpler song. Just as the tone of Bingo's comment on the last slide, I wonder if we shall ever look down into that valley again, right, is not a 
an ominous, not a portentous, not an emotionally weighty thing, right? Um, this poem, in the later published version, is uh, filled with both sort of the question of going and coming home, um, of discovery and encounter of with marvelous things and stuff. Um, but listen to how differently it sounds, right? Again, these are all the, these are all the same words. This, I think, every line that I quoted here is in the song. In the, it's still there in the published version. But again, listen to how it sounds now in this earlier context. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadow to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. Just take that quatrain there to begin with. When Frodo, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, says that, right? It has weight. This is one of Bilbo's favorite walking songs, we're told. And so presumably Bilbo wasn't thinking, you know, he obviously wasn't thinking about Frodo's ring quest later on, right? But again, we know that Frodo's on that quest, right? We know the significance of the walking that he's doing at that point in Chapter 3 of the published Fellowship of the Ring. So when we hear Frodo talking like this, home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread, we can see the uncertainty of the life ahead of him, right? He's leaving home behind, and the entire world is ahead of him, and there are many paths, right? Who knows which what path he's going to end up taking. He's going out into pathlessness, well, not pathlessness, many pathed Right, unknown paths anyway, um, and and to a, to uncertain destination. But the one thing we do know about it is that he's going to go through shadows to the edge of night. And again, that line, right? Especially when we come back and read the published book for the second time and know where what path Frodo is actually going to tread. That image of going through shadow to the edge of night seems prophetic. Right? I mean, wow, the, the foreshadowing there through shadow to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. It's like, oh, it's star, hope, right? Sam looking up at the star in Mordor, right? I mean, it's all there, right? It's all, there, except it's totally not there in this version, right? This is incredible. When Bingo says this, right? When they sing this in, in, in this early draft, none of that is there. Home is behind the world ahead. Hooray! Remember, they were just like, we're off at last, right? I mean, they're cheerful about home being behind them and the world ahead of them. There are, and why? Because there are many paths to tread, and that's awesome, right? Through shadow to the edge of night. I mean, you know, like night, because like there's daytime and there's nighttime, and we're gonna we're gonna keep, you know, go, we're gonna go through shadow to the edge of night. Because remember, they just decided they were gonna walk. During the night, the very first, they had to have a council meeting, remember, to decide whether they were going to, it was like the most momentous decision they had to make. Do we camp right away or do we walk through the darkness? And they were like, ah, let's walk in the darkness, right? Um, So, I mean, that's just, they they like walking by night. Right until the stars are all alight, because it's it's that's why it's not nice to walk at night, right? So they're they're going to go and they're going to they're going to walk through shadow to the edge of night in order to enjoy the beauties of night as well as of day, because they have the whole world ahead of them and many paths to tread, right? It's again, I I, I just absolutely love the way in which and and again, and the thing is. But I think both things, it works. It absolutely works in both contexts. Tolkien just kind of takes these lines, takes the poem. He makes some other changes to the poem, of course, but, but so much of this is just kept exactly the same. It's just like, 
you know, pick it up and plop it down in this, you know, by changing the context all around it now, you know, all these new meanings, you know, Kate, that he's sort of discovering now sort of bubble up and it's, um, it's amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. Um, uh, so anyway, carrying forward now let's get now we, we, we get now to the uh, meeting with the elves and when they first meet the elves um, notice the tone here hail bingo he said you are out late or are you perhaps lost then he called aloud in the elf tongue and all the company stopped and gathered round well isn't this wonderful they said three hobbits and a wooded knight what is the meaning of this we haven't seen anything like it since dear bilbo went away "'The meaning of this, my good elves,' said Bingo, "'is simply that we seem to be going the same way as you are. "'I was brought up by Bingo, so I like walking, even under the stars.' "'See, just like the song?' "'And I can put up with elves for lack of other company. "'But we have no need of other company, and hobbits are so dull.' "'I hope that you can hear, I know that I can hear much more clearly here.' Um, again, so much of these lines are, 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 are the same, "'as will stay in the published Fellowship of the Ring.' But can't you hear the similarity between this and chapter three of The Hobbit, right? When the, the meeting with the, the tralalalali elves of Rivendell, right? Um, these elves that Bingo meets talk exactly like the elves of Rivendell, like those silly elves of Rivendell. A lot of people say, oh, like the elves, like, you know, the, they're these ridiculous falalalali elves of The Hobbit, and then they ne- they vanish and we get all the, like, you know, serious, solemn elves of The Lord of the Rings. No, we don't. Not from the beginning, anyway, right? Gildor and Glorian, as he will later be named, he's not yet, um, though he, he will be soon named Gildor, but, um, but he doesn't seem to be differentiated uh, uh, at first. Um, anyway, he... This is a this is a reprise essentially, right? Uh, this is a lot like go back and reread the 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 dialogue exchange between Bilbo. I didn't have time to put it up. I knew I I was had my work cut out for me anyway, um, uh, t- tonight. But uh, but anyway, um, he uh, if you go back and you reread that the the ex- not 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 just the Tralala Lolly song. I think the song throws people off and they like can't they have a hard time recovering from the song. But look right after the song, at the exchange they have with uh, with Bilbo and teasing that you know don't dip your beard in the foam, Father. It's long enough without watering it, right? Uh, uh, all those you know you, you know uh, Bilbo being too fat to fit through keyholes and and all that kind of thing. It's exactly the same register of lighthearted joking and teasing that the elves do with the dwarves and with Bilbo uh, in The Hobbit. So again, this is, it's a sequel. We're in the same world. So when he meets elves, we have yet another elf meeting, which is like the elf meeting. You know, just as we saw in chapter one, we see Tolkien kind of rehashing, right? Uh, you know, he said in his letter to the publisher that he didn't have anything new. He, he didn't have any any other material, right? He felt like he'd, he'd, he'd put it all into The Hobbit. Um and again, we can kind of see his draft sort of bearing that out as he just keeps kind of uh, um, uh, as he as as he as he keeps kind of running over this sort of the same the same ground. Um, uh, exactly, James. James Stevens points out it turns out as if they already know a lot about what the hobbits are doing and where they're going. Exactly, just like they did uh, in chapter three. Absolutely, um, and uh, and notice that Bingo replies in kind. 
not unlike, again, not unlike Bingo himself. Um, so, uh, okay, so we have this, so, so the elf encounter does not, the tone of it initially, right, does not seem to be a, a part of this sort of ominous story, right? You know, we don't have the, um, we're still preserved, we're still very much in kind of Hobbit territory. Um, it's possible to say the story really grows up as soon as the Black Riders come in, right? I don't think that's fair. Yes, the story changes completely, right? That's when the actual adventure begins. But we're still in very hobbity register, right? Um, and I think this is one of the places that shows that um, that shows that really clearly. And Arthur, you're right. Well, okay, uh, Arthur is saying that Lee in the chat room was pointing out that the elves sound a lot like the hobbits. Absolutely, they 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 tease them, uh, and you know are kind of uh, are kind of ribbing them in the same way that the hobbits are 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 are, are roasting each other. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, but but more now. Okay, so this is in. The, but as they actually sit down for a conversation, right? Elves are even in the Hobbit, right? Elves know a thing or two. And again, remember that's kind of they they come to Elrond and they get advice, right? So here he's talking with an elf who's just like the Rivendell elves. And in this conversation, this is the moment where Tolkien begins to sort of put things together, right? And we begin to sort of flesh out this whole Black Rider thing, right? Um, so here's the elf uh, talking um, talking to Bingo, trying to explain things. Um, I do not think you will find the road too hard, but if you are thinking of what you call the Black Rider, that is another matter. Have you told me all your reasons for leaving secretly? Did Gandalf tell you nothing? Not even a hint, at least none that I understood. I seldom saw him after Bilbo went away, twice a year at most. I saw him last spring, when he turned up unexpectedly one night, and I told him then of the plan I was beginning to make for the journey. He seemed pleased, and told me not to put it off later than the autumn. He came again to help me with the party, but we were too busy then to talk much, and he went off with the dwarves and the Rivendell elves as soon as the fireworks were over. He did hint that I might meet him again in Rivendell, and suggested that I should make for that place first. Okay, so, um, notice we get, I get the hints of a plan, right? Uh, that is to say, Tolkien is hinting at things that suggest that, uh, you know, we're beginning to get backstory, right? Um, he's hinting backwards at story, which was obviously not there before. There was absolutely no hint of it previously, but now, kind of looking back, we have these, no, we don't know any story before, but, but, but there have, there were hints dropped that Bingo himself didn't understand, right? Gandalf didn't make a hint, at least none that I understood. Um, and remember, by the way, it's clear from this that we're in, uh, we're in version four, Right, remember the four versions of the long expected party um, when it was it was clearly Bingo's party, right? So Bilbo went away. Bingo is not Bilbo's son, so we know it, we know it's version four. Um, he's his nephew. He's 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 Bilbo's nephew. Bilbo went away a while back, years before, um, and then it was Bingo who threw the party, and they're on the road right after. So we're just like a day or two after the party, right? Um, so Gandalf is around. Wouldn't be surprising to see him coming in on a horse, sniffing or no, right? Um, but he just he just took off with the dwarves and elves, and 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 Bingo doesn't know where he is or where he's going. Um, Gandalf. So so now 
we're building backwards into the story some kind of vague but as yet unexplained need for urgency. That Gandalf was pleased that he was planning to leave uh, and that he advised him not to put it off after autumn. So there's some hint that there's some reason to be in a rush to leave. Right. And now we're going to Rivendell. Not just, you know, for giggles, uh, but... uh, because it, it it might be it might be a good idea to go to Rivendell, right? But again, these are only hints that are still sort of hard to understand. Um, a brief point I wanted to make about the song that they sang, the elves. Their conversation might be like the Tralalalali elves, but their song is not like the Tralalalali elves. <clears throat> o Elbereth, O Elbereth, O Queen beyond the western seas, O light to him that wandereth amid the world of woven trees, O stars that in the sunless year were kindled by her silver hand, that under night the shade of fear should fly like shadow from the land, O Elbereth, Gilthoniel, clear are thy eyes and cold thy breath. Now, this stanza, that second stanza there gets rejected. Right, he cuts that out, and he cuts that out relatively quickly. Um, but notice again, especially those of you who have been following along the history of Middle Earth series with me, um, will hear what he's doing here. Remember, this is the guy who is just working on the on on the published on publishing, working the Silmarillion up for publication. Right? Um, if we know. You know, we've read his 1930 Quentin Olderinwa, and we've read his 1937 Quentin Silmarillion, at least with this, what he wrote of it. We know the story. He's, he's alluding to story. He's not just alluding to the character of Elbereth, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that's what we get in that first stanza. O Elbereth, O queen beyond the western seas, O light to him that wandereth amid the world of woven trees. So we know that she lives beyond the western seas. She's a queen, uh, and she apparently cares for, pays some attention to the people uh, in the world here, right? In this world of woven trees. Um, and why why are they woven exactly? I'm not really sure. Is it to suggest that they're like, we're underneath, right, the canopies of the trees? Like, we think that nobody can see us, but she can see, you know, she's a light even to those that are wandering and, 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 and sort of covered over. She, she can see, you know, through these things. Um, anyway, so... But but now notice where he goes after that, in this version. O stars that in the sunless year were kindled by her silver hand, that under night the shade of fear should fly like shadow from the land. What do we get in the o- in this first version of the O Elbereth poem that we don't get in the published version? Narrative. That's what, right? That stanza, t- as you'll recognize, tells part of the story, right? Um... She is the one, Elbereth is the one, who kindled the stars in the sunless year. Why? That under night the shade of fear should fly like shadow from the land. Right? We have the memory of what came before the, uh, the, the, the awakening of the firstborn, what uh, Elbereth did and why it was that she did it. Right? Um, so, so, yeah, we, we, get, we get this mythological picture. Right? Um, but he cuts it right. He, which is, I think, interesting that he doesn't leave in this like little juicy Silmarillion tidbit. Remember, I said before, coming from you know volumes one through five as we have, I said I was going to be really interested to see 
when do these things begin to come together? I mean, I've I've argued before that this is the moment, right? In the Lord of the Rings is when we're going to see the Hobbit story, right, that he had published successfully and the big Silmarillion world that he's spent much more of his time on and which he's not published successfully, these two things are going to come together in the Lord of the Rings, right? Here's our first instance. Here's our first really clear example of this coming together. And interestingly, he cuts it, right? Not completely. We still get Elbereth, right? We still get Queen Beyond the Western Seas and all that stuff. Um, But he takes out the narrative stanza. And that, to me, is kind of interesting actually. Um, so, okay, just, just to kind of notice that as we pass by. Now, let's go on and look more at the story as it continues to develop. That is, as we get the conversation with the elf uh, uh, going on. Um, but this is not just the conversation with the elf anymore. Um, or that is not necessarily. What we get here in this, this is in, uh, uh, this is in now, we're actually in chapter three of the book. Um, Christopher Tolkien gives us several scraps of of rapidly ri- written notes that Tolkien has. Remember the the plot notes that we looked at at the beginning of the second class um, when Tolkien was making some projections about where possibly the story might go and what what the whole thing could be about. Remember that phenomenon that we observed at the time of how he'll tend to sort of start off in. Um, like outline form, right? Just jotting ideas, but then he will often sort of slip into dialogue as the 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 ideas begin to come come to him as conversation, right? And not merely as you know. So he doesn't he stops writing just a, a list of notes and begins to write uh, conversation. But the, there's no context. There's sometimes no indication of who's talking. Um, it seems to me that that's what's happening here. He's thinking it through, right? He's trying to work out what is the backstory here? Who are these black writers? What's going on? And the context is always in a conversation with Bingo, right? Bingo's talking to somebody. Here, it's clearly the elves, but he's still not named. Gilder is still not named yet. So it's like the elves, some elf, right? Um, Again, that's as far as he got in that what had been chapter two, uh, you know, the story of the three of them setting off the Three's Company chapter. Um, and it's in this conversation with the elves, as he's thinking about what would the elf tell him, what would Bingo ask, and what would the elf tell him that he's beginning to work all this stuff out, right? So here's this first uh, sort of new version of this. Then Gandalf did not tell you anything? You were not actually escaping? Now there's a period there, not a question mark, but it sounds like a question. You were not actually escaping. What do you mean? What from? Well, this Black Rider, they said. Notice it's ambiguously they. I don't understand them at all. Then Gandalf told you nothing? Not about them. He warned Bilbo a long time ago about the ring, of course. Don't use it too much, he used to say, and only use it for proper purposes. I mean, do not use it except for jest, or for escaping from danger or annoyance. Don't use it for harm, or for finding out other people's secrets. And, of course, not for theft or worse things, because it may get the better of you. I did not understand. I seldom saw Gandalf after Bilbo went away, but about a year ago he came one night, and I told him of the plan I was beginning to make for leaving Bag End. What about the ring? he asked. Are you being careful? Do be careful, otherwise you will be overcome by it. Um, so this is really interesting, right? Um, first off, yes, Brandon, I do think it's pretty interesting that the ring gets capitalized here, 
right? Um, <clears throat> that is, to me, very interesting. Before, when we had the Black Rider, whatever it was, looking for Baggins, for whatever reason, coming from who knows where, right? There was nothing to indicate at that point that the ring had anything to do with it, right? This is the first place where this idea emerges. Notice increasingly now the elves are talking like, dude, surely Gandalf told you something, right? And I, by the way, I love the way that that grows. You know, he, he... Bingo knows nothing, right? Because, of course, there was nothing to know when he left <laughs> Hobbiton, right? Um, but then as he meets the elves, it becomes increasingly clear that that line keeps getting repeated again and again. Gandalf did not tell you anything. Then Gandalf told you nothing, right? Um, like the elves are incredulous that Gandalf wouldn't even mention, oh, by the way, there's like huge evil guys hunting you down probably because they want your ring. Um, but I forgot to mention it, right? Um, it's one thing for Frodo the Hobbit to forget to mention that he met this dark stranger with no face who could barely speak, uh, you know, his language on the North Moors asking for Baggins. I mean, that could slip anybody's mind, right? Um, But for Gandalf actually to know that there are creatures hunting him down because of the ring and not to have said anything about it at all seems a little bit weird, right? And it seems like Tolkien himself kind of came to that conclusion, and this is why as, as these, you know, draft pages continue, it morphs, right, from Bingo talking to the elves to Bingo talking to Gandalf. It's like as if Tolkien himself had concluded, right, Kate, as we were saying before, or rather he he finds out, no, actually, Gandalf would have told Bingo something, right? Um, so he, uh, um, uh, so he, he goes back. Now, Hugo, great question. Hugo says, why does he say, I don't understand them at all? Um, how does he know that there's more than one Black Rider? Well, he doesn't absolutely know that there's more than one Black Rider. Um, but they have seen him twice coming from the same direction. So that, that idea that there might be more than one is already there uh, for him. Um, in fact, remember in the initial drafts before they met the elves there, Tolkien was kind of wavering between two or three encounters with the Black Riders. Um, he added a second one while they were in the hollow tree and the Black Rider went by outside before the one where he gets where the Black Rider gets interrupted by the elves. Um, so they're already kind of suspecting maybe there's going to be more than one of them. So that's why I think Bingo says, uh, says them there. Um, but, um, okay. But this is pretty significant about the ring. Now we've we saw him speculating about the ring before and the ring's connection with the necromancer. We saw that in the plot projections, right? Um, but now it's being connected for the first time with the black rider itself. And, but, and I love this. But notice how the power of the ring, the significance of the ring is still, again, we have to be really careful not to project what we will know from the finished story onto this, right? Notice that Gandalf's initial advice to Bingo about the ring, only use it for proper purposes. What are the proper purposes? The proper purposes of the ring include, and are possibly not limited to, um, uh, escaping from danger. That's okay. Totally legit to use it to escape from danger. Escaping from annoyance, right? If somebody's really annoying you and you want out of there, that's a completely legit reason to use the ring. It's fine. It's going to be fine. And of course, for jest, right? If you if you have a if if there's a joke that you really want to play on people, that's fine. It's all good, right? Uh, that that's good. The, so it's not, it's just not using it for harm. So the distinction that he's making is simply the motivation for using it. If you're trying to escape from danger, annoyance, or just making a joke, it's, but if you're 
using it as an instrument of harm, right? Finding out other people's secrets or stealing from them or worse things, right? That, if that, if you do that, then the ring will get the better of you. In what sense? We don't really know, but it will get the better. It will be, you remember that the implications in some of those plot outlines that the ring was sentient and that you had to fool it? You had to deceive it, right? There was that idea of a competition, even a game, sort of, right? Almost mirroring the riddle game itself um, uh, between the um, uh, between the the the, the ring and, and the wearer, right? Um, and anyway, so I, I you know I think that we see we see that concept, that sort of general concept coming back here, right? Um, so. Uh, at least that's how I take get the better of you, because um, we don't know what else it means, right? What would that look like exactly? What happens to the person who, whom the ring gets the better of, right? Dona, Dona, um, and yeah, I, I I have to wonder like what kind of um, what kind of use like. Because jest is kind of a fuzzy territory, right? Um, that is like, how much harm can you cause somebody if it's like just a joke? Like if you use it as a practical joke, uh, I mean, if you're using it for jest, but that jest involves like embarrassing somebody else, as jests so often do. Uh, right? I see Sam uh, Burke in the Twitch chat wondering how often the ring was used for pantsing people. Exactly, that's my question, right? So if you did use the ring for something like that, uh, you know, for and that's that's in jest, right? It's all good fun. Um, but is that causing like what counts as causing harm and and where you know that you know these are lines that we need to kind of uh, kind of <clears throat> kind of ask about. Um, now wait, keep in mind, hang on. Um, Brandon was pointing out that this reflects a bit the idea that Bilbo's not killing Gollum while wearing the ring was really important. Yes, <clears throat> but it's not there yet. Don't forget. The Hobbit, as it exists in 1937 to 1938, which is when Tolkien is writing this stuff, um, not only does the original Hobbit not include that passage, that passage is 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 alien from. We can't go on the published Hobbit. Tr- remember the try to remember the original chapter five. The original chapter five, Gollum truly intends to give the ring to Bilbo as a present. Uh, if he wins, if he Bilbo wins the riddle game, Bilbo does win the riddle game and uh and Gollum can't find the ring is mortified that he can't find the ring is afraid that Bilbo is going to think that he Gollum is trying to get out of fulfilling his side of the bargain and he never 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 would cheat at the riddle game and he um tries to he offers him fish in compensation as a different present and Bilbo's like no thanks and Bilbo asks can you just show me the way out as a reward instead of a present and Gollum's like sure if you're sure you don't want the fish and Bilbo's like no really I'm good and uh, and then they go and they they depart amicably and there's no there's no leap of faith there's no uh, you know the, the, there's no leap in the dark there's no uh, um you know, pity and mercy not to strike without need, not at that scene anyway, you know, at the, 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 the exit, um, to the mountains. None of that existed. It's not there. And again, we have no reason to think at this point that Tolkien's even thought of that yet. Okay. 
Keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to that uh, in uh, in a little bit. Um, now, Nancy makes a really good point. Nancy says, but surely Bilbo used the ring for theft, right? Yeah, I mean, he was a burglar, right? But remember, Nancy, he's an honest burglar, right? That's what he says in chapter 16. Um, uh, so it was all it was all good, right? He didn't use it for harm. Uh, finding out secrets? Well, you know, yes and no. He found out the secrets about, like, the exit to the Elven King's home, you know, realm and all that stuff. And the... Like I said, it's a slippery slope when you start talking about intentions and, uh, and you know, proper purposes. It's kind of hard, right, to define. Um, <laughs> Josh Ramsey is saying he stole the Elven King's cupcakes. Totally true, man. Totally true. Stuffed his pockets with cupcakes and leaves. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he absolutely did. In the early drafts of The Hobbit, it totally was cupcakes. Um, that Because... because um, in England at the time, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, I don't know if they still are. Any British people? Oh, probably not, because it's, uh, what, four o'clock in the morning in England right now, um, but can tell me whether or not uh, this is still true. But cupcakes, what in America we call cupcakes, were, were called fairy cakes um, at that point. So it was a joke, right? They're like, the, what did the fairies eat? When he was in, you know, uh, like the 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 underground, like w- when he went inside the fairy mound, right? Uh, uh, they well, they they eat fairy cakes, obviously, right? And so, so Bilbo steals his cupcakes, and uh, and takes off. It's all good. Um, and yes, he did steal the Arkenstone and stuff. I know it's it's. Uh, um, it, it's it's all it's it's all it's all good, but again. Those questions are raised here, right? Proper purposes. Let's uh, let's let's sit down with a lawyer and try to decide, right? What exactly are the proper purposes? Um, uh, anyway, it's um, it's it's interesting, right? Okay, so and notice we shift from get the better of you again, as if it's like you versus the ring competing with each other, to um, you will be overcome by it. All right, let's carry on. As we this the 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 idea continues continues to evolve. This is my favorite passage of the entire chapter. Well, said the elf, I don't know much about this. You must find Gandalf as quick as you can. Rivendell, I think, is the place to go. Now we're going to go to Rivendell because Gandalf is probably there, right? We can get more exposition in Rivendell, so you better get there. But it is my belief that the Lord of the Ring is looking for you. Is that bad or good? <laughs> question. Right? How awesome is that? Is the uh the Lord of the Ring looking for me? Is that um is that a bad thing? Um yeah, yes. Yes. Turns out that's definitely that's definitely a bad thing. Um Okay, all right. Anyway, uh bad. <laughs> bad the elf said. Bad, but how bad I cannot say. Bad enough if he only wants the ring back, which is unlikely. Worse if he wants payment. Very bad indeed if he wants you as well, which is quite likely. We fancy that he must at last, and I assume that we as elves, right? We elves. We fancy that he must at last, after many years, have found out that Bilbo had it. Hence the asking for Baggins. But somehow the search for Baggins failed, and then something must have been discovered about you. 
but by strange luck, you must have held your party and vanished just as they found out where you lived. You put off the scent, but they are hot on it now. Who are they? Servants of the Lord of the Ring. People word that whenever you get that brackets with the question mark thing, that means Christopher Tolkien is guessing what that word is. And you have no idea how bad Tolkien's handwriting is. When he was writing notes for himself and he was writing for, like when he was like inspired, right? When, when, he, when, when he got on a roll, his writing is almost completely illegible. He himself does not seem to have been able to, to figure out what he wrote some of the time. Um, uh, so even Christopher um, Tolkien, who knows uh, uh, his dad's handwriting better than anybody else, swings and misses. When you get the, when you get the, the, the like five, four or five dots, that means he's not even, he, he can't even guess. Like there's a word there. He doesn't, Christopher doesn't know what it is. Right. Um, so again, that, that's what that means when, when Christopher does that. Um, Okay, stuff that we notice here. First of all, okay, so the necromancer is now being called the Lord of the Ring. That's fun, right? So now our 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 antagonist is sort of starting to starting to take shape. It is, of course, Diego. He's only got the one ring so far, right? The Lord of the Ring. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Does that mean that the ring that Bingo has is the one ring of which he is the Lord, right? The Lord of the ring. And and you got some explaining to do that you took his one ring of which he was Lord, right? Um, uh, I don't Now, Stephen is saying we don't really know that the Lord of the ring is the necromancer. Well, that's true that the elf doesn't say that in this passage. I think putting together what we've seen before, especially in the plot, in the, you know, the, the, the plot projections, that seems pretty safe, and he is going to get there explicitly very, very soon after that. So I don't myself have very many doubts that that's what Tolkien was thinking of when uh, uh, when he's talking about the Lord of the Ring here. Um, but, uh, but Stephen, you're right to be cautious. Absolutely right to be cautious. But I do think uh, predating this. Um, oh, I didn't even finish. People who have passed through the Ring. Um, and Arthur, I agree, that does sound painful or mysterious. I don't understand what that means. Um, and is the ring through which the people or whatever it was, the word passed, um, is it Bingo's ring? Bilbo's ring? Right. Is that the ring in question? The ring of which the Lord is the Lord and through which his servants passed? Uh, maybe, I don't know, but let's focus for, for, uh, for a while here, not just on, what we don't know in this passage, because there's still a lot that we don't know, but what we do know, right? Notice, Exhibit A. The Lord of the Ring is pretty bad, but he's not that bad. Or at least the elves are entertaining the idea that it might kind of turn out all right. Um, This is not a doomsday kind of situation, right? It's definitely bad. Good is off the table, right? Is that bad or good? It's definitely not good, but, you know, it's not a catastrophe. I remember Frodo's reaction in the published Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf says that, like, uh, you know, the Dark Lord now thinks that the long-forgotten name of Baggins has become important. And remember what Frodo says in the published text is, but this is terrible, far worse than the worst that I guessed from your hints and warnings, right? I mean, he's, it's like this is the worst possible news he could possibly... I mean, this is, this is like as bad as it could possibly be. 
but not in the original version, right? You know, the elves are like, eh, it's bad, but it might not be that bad. Maybe he just wants it back, right? Maybe you can you can give him his ring back, say you're sorry, and it'll be fine. Now, notice the Lord of the Ring is sufficiently evil that the elves are doubtful that that's going to pan out, right? Pretty unlikely that he just wants his his uh, his uh, his stolen property returned and then he'll let bygones be bygones, right? So that probably won't happen. Um it would be worse if he demands payment, right? That could get sticky. Who knows what that guy's going to ask in payment for the ring. Um, and it's quite likely that it's going to be very bad indeed because he's going to want you as well, right? So he might possibly take you as a slave in payment for having his ring, right? Um, that's kind of the worst option, bingo, right? And, and, and... Not going to lie, it's likely that that's, in fact, the scenario. But notice what he doesn't say, right? What he doesn't say is, and the whole world is doomed if that happens, right? It's not about that at all. We don't get any prophecy of doom. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with anybody but bingo, right? But how bad, I cannot say how bad it will be for you, bingo, right? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with anybody else. Um. That, I think, is a really important thing to notice here. And that seems to be consistent uh, still for quite a while. Um, so we know he's looking for him. So now, so now this is this is definitely a Baggins story. This is a bingo story. Um, yes, they're hunting for you personally. We've confirmed they're hunting for you personally, and this is why. Um, the Lord of the Ring wants his ring back. Since he only has one ring, and since it's singular, this is presumably his ring, right? Um, uh so, interesting, interesting. Okay, and yes, the other thing that jumps out at me here in this passage, too, is the luck business, right? By strange luck, you must have held your party and vanished just as they found out where you lived. Um, several of you, of course, are remembering, you know, chance if chance you call it and uh, and all that kind of thing from the published Lord of the Rings. Yes, but it doesn't go that way, right? This is what's going to lead to that. Where we should be going is backwards, Right. Remember Bilbo's luck in The Hobbit. All the things that happen by luck or where B- Bilbo happens to be in the right place at the right time or to you know, choose a path blindly and end up going in the right direction, um, uh, which, of course, Gandalf talks about things not being arranged for his sole benefit, right? Um, and that he's uh, only a very small person in a wider world. That seems to be... It's, it's recalling Bilbo's luck. That we know, so Bingo seems to have inherited some of Bilbo's luck. Um, that the same sort of luck is is in place here. Um, the things that Elrond and Gandalf are eventually going to say about luck or chance in the Lord of the Rings is putting the whole thing in a much more explicitly sort of theological context than we get at really any point. We start to hint, uh, but still pretty indirectly, towards the theological implications of the luck, right? In that last scene of The Hobbit. Um, They're going to get, they, Gandalf and Elrond, are going to be much more explicitly theological about it when we get there in the fellowship, in the published Fellowship of the Ring. We're still not there yet. By strange luck, you must have held your party and vanished just as they found out where you lived. Huh. Funny. Um, Yeah. Um, And yes, Hugo, the stuff about luck is there in the first edition of The Hobbit. Yes. Yes. Um, 
Good. And yes, Veronica and a couple other people were pointing uh, this out too. The scent business. I love that. You put you put off the scent, but they are hot on it now. It's like we're picking up this whole sniffing thing. Remember, the sniffing was Gandalf originally, right? It was a joke about how long Gandalf's nose was. But that the, the nose humor, right, for Gandalf uh, has now become... Again, notice like the the complete recontextualization of these things. Now the sniffing of the mysterious rider that comes up from behind is um, uh, is is uh, um, the now it's it's the scent of a bloodhound, right, pursuing his victim. Um, again, completely completely recontextualized. Uh, it's. Uh, it's really fun. Okay. Now, this is uh, um, this is where the conversation becomes less clear. Who's talking to whom? Right. These are now the sort of the disjointed no- notes that Tolkien is writing, where it's no longer obvious that he is describing the scene. All of this kind of begins with he's sort of working through these ideas in the conversation between uh, Bingo and the elves. Um, it's less clear. This is when we're kind of morphing back towards Gandalf, right? Okay, so here's one thing that we get. Yes, if the ring overcomes you, you yourself become permanently invisible, and it is a horrible, cold feeling. Everything becomes very faint, like gray ghost pictures against the black background in which you live, but you can smell more clearly than you can hear or see. You have no power, however, like a ring, of making other things invisible. You are a ring wraith. You can wear clothes. Change to, you are just a ring wraith, and your clothes are visible unless the Lord lends you a ring. But you are under the command of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, notice the big thing that happened? Exactly, Francis. <clears throat> you got it immediately, uh, Kimber, as well. Uh, I don't know where he got more rings, Brandon, but he's clearly gotten them, right? He is now the Lord of the Rings, plural. This seems to me a really interesting and significant thing, right? Again, in the previous passage, with the in the Lord of the Ring singular passage, it's, I mean, if he's the Lord of the Ring, that would imply that Bingo and Bilbo's ring is the ring in question of which he is Lord, right? Which means that his ring has a great significance, if only a personal significance, for the necromancer, right? For the Lord. Um, it's all about the personal grudge. Like, you, dude, you've got my ring and I want it back and I'm going to take it out of your hide, right? Um, now, the direction is not immediately to, to, to go from that, from this special, indeed unique ring that belongs to the Lord, and to take that idea and build it up into the big sort of apocalyptic story that we're going to get around that and the, the doom that it spells to all of Middle-earth if he recovers his ring, right? Instead, Tolkien goes the other way and decreases the specialness of Bingo's ring. It just becomes one of many. Now he's the Lord of a bunch of rings, right? One of which is the one that Bingo has, right? So that's the... So he moves in what, knowing the final story, might seem to us like a counterintuitive direction, right? Uh, His first direction is not to go in the direction where he'll eventually end up, but to go in, in fact, quite the... uh, quite in the opposite direction. Uh, It is capitalized, Diego, you're right, Um, but... uh, 
but I don't I don't think that that means it is superlative okay I don't think that that's enough evidence for us to conclude that he is still thinking of it as superlative among the all, like the other rings of which he is the lord right um, if the ring overcomes you he's talking about Bingo's ring right and he uses the capital letter like he has before there. Um, but notice we have lends you a ring, right? Um, here, and this would seem to apply to Bingo's ring as well, right? It is a ring which the Lord might lend somebody, clearly, because the issue is the clothes, right? Notice this sort of sticking point that Tolkien has kind of come across. Um, so we've got this short guy on a horse, Right with the cloak and the boots and the nose, but then not the nose, right? The hood with the head in it, looking around and sniffing. But there's a problem, right? If if it's ring associated, this thing, why is it not invisible? Bilbo wasn't invisible, right? You didn't see any cloak and boots. Um, even when Bingo, when Bilbo was wearing was wearing boots, which, by the way, Tolkien says in his letters he was through most of the Hobbit. It's not mentioned in the text. Um, but anyway, um, and by the way, Tolkien totally made that up in order to justify why he painted boots on Bilbo when he put Bilbo in the eagle's eyrie wearing boots in one of his illustrations, and somebody pointed out that it was a contradiction, and Tolkien's like, "No, it's not. No, he had boots the whole time. You got some boots in Rivendell. I just didn't mention it." Right. Uh, anyway, yeah. So he totally retconned some boots in uh, for uh, uh, for 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 Bilbo. Anyway, okay. Um, <clears throat> so if Bilbo's clothes disappeared when he put on the ring, why can we see the clothes of this ring wraith? <clears throat> Answer: Because when you're a wraith. You become permanently invisible, kind of, right? But it's not exactly, it's not the same invisible that you get when you put on the ring, right? Um, Like Bilbo did. You yourself become permanently invisible. That is like the essence of you, not your clothes. It's not a convenient thing to conceal you as you are from the eyes of others, right? Because that implies it's you using the ring. Like, you have power over the ring. You are using the ring for your own purposes to conceal, in order to, like, make jokes on people, to escape from annoying folks, right? To, and to get away from danger. Those being the sanctioned uses of the ring. Um, uh, uh, if you're doing, again, you're using the ring, right? When you, but when you become a ring wraith, now the ring is using you. The ring has overcome you. Right, and so you, your body is invisible, but your clothes aren't. Right, uh, so it's like all the all the disadvantages of invisibility with none of the advantages. Right, um, you have no power, like a ring, of making other things invisible. Again, notice that it's about the powerlessness of the wraith. Right, um, you are a ring wraith. Um, just a ring wraith, he adds. You'll know he changes it to from you are a ring wraith to you are just a ring wraith, right? Something less than a regular person, and your clothes are visible unless the Lord lends you a ring. So if you are wearing a legit ring, then your clothes will become invisible too. So the ring wraith is not wearing a ring. 
He is someone who is subject to who's been overcome by a ring, but he's not himself wearing it. Because if it were, his clothes would become invisible, right? Um, but you are under the command of the Lord of the Rings. Remember where all this came from? Why do we have this elaborate retcon of the... Because Gandalf was wearing boots and a cloak when he came around the corner on his white horse, right? And then the boots and the cloak stayed, and now there they are, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. It's um, kind of amazing. Okay, Um, so... So so let's keep trying to figure this out. All right. So we begin we see him beginning in again in these in these jotted notes very hard to un, to interpret and understand uh, that is just hard to read. Um we see him kind of groping towards the backstory here. In the very ancient days, the Ring Lord made many of these rings and sent them out through the world to snare people. He sent them to all sorts of folk. The elves had many and there, are now, and there are now many elf wraiths in the world, but the Ring Lord cannot rule them. The goblins got many, and the invisible goblins are very evil and wholly under the Lord. Dwarves, I don't believe, had any. Some say the rings don't work on them. They are too solid. Men had few, but they were most quickly overcome, and... Can't read the end of that sentence. Um, the men wraiths are also servants of the Lord. Other creatures got them. Rings, presumably, not the men. When I first read that, when I was reading that this evening, uh, uh, earlier on, I was like, the men wraith are also servants of the Lord. Other creatures got them. It's like, yeah, as if they were preyed upon by other, by, by, by predators, right? Oh, there used to be a bunch of men wraiths, but, you know, other, other creatures got them, right? They, they're not around anymore. Now, but I believe it means other creatures got rings. Do you remember Bilbo's story of Gollum? We don't know where Gollum comes in. Certainly not elf, nor goblin. He is probably not dwarf. We rather believe he really belongs to an ancient sort of hobbit, because the ring seems to act just the same for him and you. Long ago, he belonged, again there's Christopher guessing, to a wise, clever-handed, and quiet-footed little family, but he disappeared underground, and though he used the ring often, the Lord evidently lost track of it, until Bilbo brought it out to light again. Of course, Gollum himself may have heard news. All the mountains were full of it after the battle, and tried to get back the ring, or told the Lord. Okay. Um, Elf wraiths. Yeah, Nancy, that is kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, uh, Yeah, now, Yana says it's it's incredible to see um, that you know how fast the general backstory is taking form, and much of it is already there, like the stubbornness of the dwarves, right? But of course, Yana, why is that already there? Because it's in the Silmarillion, right? Um, the dwarves being made tough and 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 solid and strong to endure—that was that was already there, right? Um, he's already got that dwarf concept in mind. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> let's um. Let's sum up. Um, uh, oh, and Hugo, no idea who's speaking here. The narrator says, I, I, it could be the elf. I think it's probably Gandalf by now. Um, 
but it could be either one. This is in that sort of still kind of indeterminate state where Tolkien is just jotting down notes, but he's doing it in kind of dialogue form, but it's it's kind of detached from any other uh, sort of actual narrative. So let's, let's sum up. Um, uh, many rings had the elven kings under the sky. Uh, many had the goblins also, and they were very evil. The dwarves, I don't believe, had any. Men had few, but they were quickly overcome. It doesn't scan quite as well as the verse later on will, but but okay, so we know... Um, so first of all, notice the fundamental story of the of the ring. Notice, by the way, how much this has changed. Um, this is this is a huge change. Not only do we have a now a plurality of rings. The initial idea in the Lord of the Ring passage, right, seemed to be that this one ring was unique. Um, that 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 the necromancer had a ring that he somehow came to lose it, and and it ended up with Bilbo, right? And now he wants the thing back, and he wants to make you pay uh, for keeping it. Not only does he pluralize it, but he reverses it. Instead of the one ring jealously guarded by the Lord, we have multiple rings that he's given away like candy, right? <clears throat> They're just traps, right? Um, other people are, are meant to have them. That's the whole point of them. They're booby traps for people, right? Um, all kinds of people. Right? He's trying to, this is how, he's trying to set his hooks in as many people as he can. Right? And notice the mixed success of the, of, of the necromancer here. Right? On the one, so, okay, uh, so, with the elves, bunch of elves got him, bunch of elves get wraithified. Right? So, uh, that's not great. Right? Um, but... You know, it's not that bad either. Well, I mean, the Ring Lord can't rule them. So it was like, you know, 50-50 for the Ring Lord there, right? On the one hand, it, he did succeed in wraithifying the elves, so that was a win. But he can't enslave them, apparently. So in the end, you just end up with these bunch of useless elf wraiths, you know, floating around doing who knows what. But not they're not their wraiths now, and so they can't do much. But he's... So now we have these, what, like random ghost elves, right? Um, uh, so, yeah. So in the end, that was kind of useless. Uh, it was a failed experiment. The goblins, that, that was great, right? Um, so we give the rings to goblins, and they become invisible, and very they're very evil and wholly under, un, under the Lord. So that was great, right? Goblin wraiths worked out real well. Dwarves, complete failure, right? So... So, you know, we, we have now like a spectrum, right? We've got the dwarves way, way or sorry, the dwarves were way over here, right, on their spectrum. Um, they were, they were, they, there was complete failure. Uh, the goblins, total success, right? Elves kind of in the middle. Um, there are men wraiths also, servants of the Lord. So they seem to be towards the goblin end of the spectrum, right? The humans and uh, other creatures like hobbits. Right, and so this idea of Gollum being a hobbit, an ancient sort of hobbit, right, um, and that he got one of these rings, um, seems to this is uh, this so 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 again now Bingo's ring is one of the many rings distributed deliberately uh, by the Lord of the Rings in order to ensnare people. So now the significance of the ring and the danger of it is that he is going to be effectually snared, 
and he's going to become a ring wraith, right? Um, and it's through Gollum. Now comes the idea that it's through Gollum himself that the Lord of the Rings came to hear the name Baggins. Because, of course, Bilbo did say his name to to Gollum. Gollum knew the name Baggins. Um, but notice, that's not what forces that move, right? Um, the mountains were full of news after the battle, right? After the Battle of Five Armies, lots of people were probably mentioning the name of Baggins, right? It wasn't just Gollum. Um, so I don't think it's the mere fact that uh, Gollum came to know Bilbo's surname that made Gollum get brought in here. Rather, we have this now a backstory. Of, and, and of course, we see him now here for the first time confronting the crucial question. Wait a second. Who is that Gollum creature? Anyway, right? Gollum was a fun kind of one-off creature in The Hobbit, right? Um, but if we have this long backstory about the ring and it comes from the Lord of the Rings and everything else, then... Um, uh, then we got to figure out Gollum, right? And so now we see him trying to work that out for the first time. And honestly, if I had to guess where this comes from, this idea of the ring distribution in order to snare people, I think Gollum seems to be pretty close to the root of that. Um, <clears throat> we see in Gollum somebody who was ruined by the ring. If he was a hobbit, he's been ruined by the ring, Right. If he, if he went from wise, clever-handed, and quiet-footed to the Gollum that uh, uh, is pretty gross, uh, even in the first edition of The Hobbit. Um, I mean, he still wants to eat Bilbo in the first edition of The Hobbit. That's still... The, the Gollum side of the, of the wager doesn't change. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so... So, yeah, so that kind of seems to be the root of it. Um, now, Michael, great question. Is Tolkien specifically connecting... The Lord of the Rings with Thu Sauron, Morgoth's servant from the Silmarillion tradition. Yes. Um, I say that very confidently, even though there's very little textual evidence to support it yet. Um, but the reason I say that very confidently is from the draft texts of The Hobbit, actually. Um the necromancer who lives in his tower in Mirkwood is, you'll remember, I, I gotta be careful because I don't want to spend ages talking about that. I don't want to get too distracted by this. So I'll do the really, really short. This is the Cliff's Notes version of this. If you remember in the published Silmarillion, after Luthien and Huon, uh, uh, you know, beat up on Sauron and make him cry out for mommy, he leaves. Sauron leaves, right? Uh, wounded, dripping blood from his throat and in humiliation, and he flees, often is never seen in the Silmarillion again. Where does he go? He goes to Tower Nefuin, um, that dark, mysterious forest in which people can so easily become ensnared and lost, um, and he sets himself up there. Uh, he hides in that forest and sets himself up in a tower there. Um, uh, the tower is mentioned explicitly in earlier versions, not in the published Silmarillion. Um, that would, in the earlier Silmarillion stories, as many of you will remember, Tower Nefuin is called Mirkwood. Um, and it's really clear when we look at the descriptions of Tower Nefuin, you might remember we were looking at some of those scenes in the alliterative lay of the Children of Hurin from Lays of Beleriand. Um, 
it's clear that I've talked about in The Hobbit how Tolkien is recycling a bunch of the ideas that he had uh, in the Silmarillion tradition. Um, the Arkenstone being a recycled Silmaril, uh, uh, the Elven King being recycled uh, Thingol of Menegroth, um, uh, Elrond being recycled Elrond, and uh, Gondolin being uh, kind of dragged in but changed Mirkwood is also recycled from the Silmarillion. It is recycled Tower Nefuin. And in the original drafts, in the first drafts of the of the early chapters of The Hobbit, that's very explicit. The necromancer in Mirkwood is actively identified, like he got there into the tower where he is in Mirkwood. Um, the necromancer of The Hobbit is after he fled from Baron and Luthien. Um, Huan doesn't get quite as much press there, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, in, in the in the Hobbit drafts, it's explicit that the necromancer of the Hobbit is recycled Sauron. So that link is already is already there, um, but he's not he's not talked about it yet here in these chapters. So I want to be kind of cautious, um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James says it seems like once you're wraithified, you don't have a use for the ring anymore, so he can give the ring to someone else. Yeah, or at least he doesn't need you to have the ring anymore because it's done, right? It's done its job. You've been wraithified. He might choose to lend it to you if, like, you have a use for it, for him, right? If, or rather, if he has a use for you to have it. Um, but, yeah, you don't get to keep it permanently. Um, it's done its damage, and now he can use it for other things. Um, okay, uh... So yes, yeah, so is the Lord of the Rings the necromancer? Yeah, no, Michael, I'm totally convinced of that. I'm totally convinced of that based on the plot projections at the end of chapter one, um, that that's uh, been uh, identified pretty clearly there. Um, and Michael asks, is he thinking of the Lost Road? You mean Sauron in the Lost Road? Uh, yeah, well, I mean Sauron's role there. Um, Michael, I would certainly say the development of the character of Sauron in the fall of Numenor story in the lost road, which remember is the volume is volume five of the history of middle earth, right? That was the stuff that he was just working out, um, before he started writing the Lord of the rings, Sauron, who becomes called Sauron there in the Numenor story for the first time, um, instead of Thu, um, or in addition to Thu really. Um, so Sauron, um, it is in the, it is through the Lost Road tradition that Sauron clearly becomes like the big bad of the New World, right? After the banishment of Morgoth, uh, following the, the 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 War of Wrath, Sauron is the great and is the enemy of the world now. And so, yes, in that sense, the the development of the Lost Road story of the Numenor story, at the very least, sort of makes it totally logical that Sauron would be the big antagonist um, that is still looming over this world. Um, so is he thinking of Sauron, the Sauron of Numenor, the, you know, the, the, the Thu, uh, you know, the Thu necromancer of, uh, of the Silmarillion tradition? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, uh, so yeah, so that, uh, that to me, I, I don't think that's looking forward and, uh, you know, sort of projecting backward the stuff that we know where he's going to go. I think that we can see from the stuff he's already written to this point that it's pretty clear that that's the way that he's thinking about it. All right, running out of time. I started a little bit late, so we'll go a little bit late. I'm so close to finishing my slides, too. Okay, so now he's done... 
he's been he you know after kind of groping through these ideas, working through the you know, the ideas about ring rates and the backstory of the ring. Now he's going to put it. You know, we we we're done with those notes. Now we're gonna we're gonna put it into the narrative. So what do we do? We start again, right? Here's the first paragraph of the sequel to The Hobbit, right? So we're scrapping the long expected party, or at least we're going to make the long expected party into chapter two, right? And he's going to start the whole book again with uh, exposition, right? So here's the new first paragraph of the book. One day long ago, two people were sitting talking in a small room. By the way, does that not sound like the most gripping story you've ever read before, right? The first sentence is like, once long ago, two people were sitting talking in a small room, right? That is just about the least dramatic (laughs) beginning to a story I've ever heard. I shouldn't tease him, uh, but, uh, but it's interesting. Okay. One was a wizard and the other was a hobbit. And the room was the sitting room of the comfortable and well-furnished hobbit hole known as Bag End Underhill on the outskirts of Hobbiton in the middle of the Shire. Notice, by the way, how in doing this, Tolkien is connecting the ends of his stories. Where does the hobbit end? With Bilbo and Gandalf sitting in Bag End talking, right? And so now he's going to begin the new story exactly there, which is kind of interesting. Okay. The wizard was, of course, Gandalf, and he looked much the same as he had always done, though ninety years and more had gone by since he last came into any story that is now remembered. The hobbit was Bingo Bulger Baggins, the nephew, or really first cousin once removed, of old Bilbo Baggins and his adopted heir. Bilbo had quietly disappeared many years before, but he was not forgotten in Hobbiton. Okay, so we can see the... um, this, yes, exactly, Francis. Straight to Bingo with Bilbo already gone, right? He's still thinking. He hasn't changed the basic story from that fourth version of, of the long-expected party. Notice how briefly he's treating all this stuff, though. So, yeah, Bilbo went away, whatever, but let's get to the conversation between him, between Bingo and Gandalf, right? Um, so, again, we're working up to the long-expected party. That's where he's going to get to at the end of this new chapter. That is the plan to to do the long expected party, um, but uh, but okay. So so now we're definitively sitting in Bag End and talking about stuff, and it's Gand- so no. So Gandalf definitely didn't tell him nothing anymore, right? We're we're over that. Um, now look at what Gandalf how Gandalf explains the ring in this version. It is the only ring left, said Gandalf, and hobbits are the only people of whom the Lord has not yet mastered any one. In the ancient days, the dark master made many rings, and he dealt them out lavishly, so that they might be spread abroad to ensnare folk. The elves had many, and there are now many elf wraiths in the world. The goblins had some, and their wraiths are very evil and holy under the command of the Lord. Notice how he's. this is very close to the previous draft. He's fleshing it out, right? He's got that the notes written so badly that that Christopher couldn't read every word and and now he's he's fleshing this out more fully into a, a narrative chapter right the dwarves it is said had seven but nothing could make them invisible in them it only kindled to flames the fire of greed and the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarves of old was a golden ring in this way the master controlled them But these hordes are destroyed, and the dragons have devoured them, and the rings are melted, or so some say. Men had three rings, and others they found in secret places, cast away by the elf wraiths. The the men wraiths are servants of the Lord, and they brought all their rings back to him, till at last he had gathered into his hands again 
He had gathered all into his hands again that had not been destroyed by fire. All save one. Okay, so conceptually, this is very similar to those notes that we got before, right? We still have the Lord of the Rings making bunches and bunches of rings and spreading them far and wide, right? We still get the elves made into elf wraiths and then chucking their rings, apparently, rather than, like the men wraiths, obediently bringing them back to the Lord, right? The elves become wraiths and then they just chuck them, right? And sometimes, you know, like hobbits pick them up when that happens, right? Like, oh, Gollum possibly might have done such a thing. So, elf wraiths, goblin wraiths, dwarves now definitely get some, right? And in fact, they get seven of them. And now we have the new thing about, they don't become invisible, but we have the thing about the greed. And the greed thing is particularly fascinating to me in this context. This context being chapter one of a sequel to The Hobbit. Because, of course, the flame... The kindling to flames of the fire of the greed of dwarves was rather a prominent theme of the end of The Hobbit, right? It was dragon sickness then, but we have the same concept, and Tolkien is sort of shifting that around. Doesn't this sound at least like the um, the potential beginnings of retcon, right? Was there a dwarf ring involved, Right. Uh, when Thorin's uh, uh, fire of greed was kindled to flame at the end of The Hobbit, right? Is he going to go there? Uh, If you're thinking, oh, he wouldn't go back and change The Hobbit like that, except he did with Gollum, right? So who's to say? I don't know, but I think it's interesting. Um, Okay, so so, so the master controlled them. So here we have, this is the biggest change from that previous one. That um, Well, second biggest change. Second biggest change is not only do the dwarves have seven rings, but also they're not immune to the control. So, uh, again, their, their rings are still pretty much failures from, from the Lord of the Rings perspective. But at least there is some level of control. So they're no longer at the far end of the spectrum. They're now like a little further up the spectrum than they were before. Um, but notice the really important thing, right? Oh, good, yeah, Diego, you were thinking of the dragon sickness too. Um, the most important thing is the status of Bingo's ring. In the earlier, in the the, the, the the stuff we were just looking at, right, when it shifted from the singular ring to the many rings, um, <clears throat> that seriously decreased the significance, as we said, of, or as I said anyway, of, uh, of Bingo's ring. Notice that he's kind of pulling, not pulling back exactly, but he's shifting here. Right. Um, the Bingo's ring is, n- is still not unique. It's just one of the many rings that was distributed around, but it's significant. It is special because it's the last one that's still out there. Okay. So that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, and this is why the Lord of the Rings particularly wants it back. Right. It's the only one that is still around that he's never gotten back, and he really wants it, apparently. Okay, that's interesting. It's the only ring left, said Gandalf, and hobbits are the only people of whom the Lord has not yet mastered any one. Um, So thinking of that again for a second. um, What about Gollum? Right? Why, uh, uh, Why... has he not mastered? I mean, how can he say that he hasn't mastered any of them if not because he, Gollum wasn't mastered, 
Gollum never came under the control at all of the Lord, right? Um, and yes, Brandon, he would particularly like to master hobbits. Um, it's it seems that like we're we're he never succeeded in wraithifying any hobbits. And darn it, he's not content with that, right? He it seems like uh, the Lord of the Rings is a is a completionist, right? He he wants the he wants the full set, um, so he needs some hobbits for his wraith collection. <laughs> Gotta catch them all, says Matthew. Exactly, exactly. Karina was making the same exact joke. Yep, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, the rings of power as Pokeballs really actually kind of works. Uh, uh, it doesn't throw them directly, right? But there's, 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 there's a parallel here. I mean, it's an ominous parallel, right? But, uh, but yeah, there, there are ways, there are ways in which that works. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, when they start talking about Gollum, right? Bingo's confused here. Um, and I, I didn't, uh, uh, of course, there are long stretches of this chapter, which, as you will have noticed, are almost word for word what gets retained in the published version. Um, I didn't give all of those word uh, for word passages. Um, so anyway, so I've skipped a bit the, the 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 beginning about Gollum and him finding the ring. The the major difference, of course, with the story of Gollum's finding of the ring, um, apart from the fact that it fell off the hand of an elf. Right, so there was this elf. He was swimming a this unnamed elf who was swimming a river. The ring fell off, and he got killed. And then the ring got eaten by a fish, and the fish took it away. Right, um, but of course that makes sense because remember the 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 um, it's elf rings, right? That uh, hobbits were said to have found. So of course it would be an elf, right? Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So and of course his name is Deagle. Gollum's original name was Deagle, which is. Of course, interesting. Bingo objects. Still, Gollum must must have been or be very much older than the oldest hobbit that ever lived in field or burrow, said Bingo. That was the ring, said Gandalf. Of course, it is a poor sort of long life that the ring gives, a kind of stretched life rather than a continued growing, a sort of thinning and thinning. Frightfully wearisome, Bingo. In fact, finally tormenting. Even Gollum came at last to feel it, to feel he could not bear it, and to understand dimly the cause of the torment. He had even made up his mind to get rid of it. But he was too full of malice. If you want to know, I believe he had begun to make a plan that he had not the courage left to carry out. There was nothing new to find out, nothing left but darkness, nothing to do but cold eating and regretful remembering. He wanted to slip out and leave the mountains, and smell the open air even if it killed him, as he thought it probably would. But that would have meant leaving the ring, and that is not easy to do. The longer you have had one, the harder it is. It was especially hard for Gollum, as he had had a ring for ages, and it hurt him, and he hated it, and he wanted, when he could no longer bear to keep it, to hand it on to someone else to whom it could become a burden, bind itself as a blessing, and turn to a curse." That is, in fact, the best way of getting rid of its power. Remember that reference back in the plot notes about tricking the ring, right? About how Bilbo was going to trick the ring by giving it away to Frodo? We can see that idea is... But notice it's been transplanted from Bilbo onto Gollum, 
right? That's really interesting. And so now here's Gollum hating the ring, right? Recognizing that the ring is killing him and wanting to get rid of it, planning to get rid of it. Do you see what he's doing? Remember where he's starting from. He's starting from the Hobbit story. The only Hobbit story there is in which Gollum offered to give the ring away. Gollum intended from the beginning to give the ring away, fully meant to give Bilbo his ring. Why would he do that? If the ring is now really... So we see Tolkien confronting this problem from the very beginning. If the ring really has all these properties, if it's so addicting and so hard to get rid of and has all this effect on you, how on earth could the Gollum from the published Hobbit just be like, oh, I'll give it to you as a president if you win the riddle game, right? He would never do that unless he would, right? Unless he had reason that he wanted to give it away. Unless, in fact, this is a really sort of tragic and even heroic thing that Gollum was trying to do. He couldn't, he couldn't do it, right? But uh, uh, in the end, he, 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 he never pulled the trigger, Gollum. But he genuinely intended to, actively planned to do it. And so finally, here's Bilbo. And so here's his opportunity to give the ring away and therefore free himself from the power of the ring. But now notice, whereas Bilbo had to trick the ring by giving it to Bingo um, in order to escape from it himself, he wasn't trapping Bingo, right? But that idea now has been being brought in, it's being made much more sinister. By binding itself, by binding the ring as a blessing that will turn into a curse, that's how he will get rid of its power. It's almost like Gollum, Gollum could free himself from the ring if he gave the ring another victim, knowingly gave it another victim, right? Passed its curse on to somebody else. Um, that's, uh, that's, that, that's kind of cool. Okay. So, Bingo's got to leave. Because the Lord of the Rings has found out the last ring is still around, and he's going to look, come looking for it, so what do we do? Where shall we go, and what shall we steer by, and what shall be our quest? Said Bingo, without a trace of a smile or the glimmer of a jest. When the, sorry, a typo by me again. When the huge joke is over... What then? Remember, Gandalf is like, don't be too serious. Leave, but make it a big joke. Huge joke, bingo. Right? When the huge joke is over, what then? At present, I have no idea, said Gandalf, quite seriously and much to Bingo's surprise and dismay. But it will be just the opposite of Bilbo's adventure, to begin with at any rate. You will set out on a journey without any known destination, and as far as you have any object, it will not be to win new treasure but to get rid of a treasure that belongs, one might say, inevitably, to you. But you cannot even start without going east, west, south, or north. And which shall we choose? Towards danger, and yet not too rashly or too straight towards it. Go east. Yes, yes, I have it. Make first for Rivendell, and then we shall see. Notice what conclusions we can draw from this passage here, right? Okay, so first of all... um, what shall be his quest? We don't know. Um, he wants to get rid of the treasure. That is, he wants to free himself from the ring. He's trapped by the ring. He can't get rid of it. 
right? He can't destroy it. He has no means of destroying it. He can't have the will to get rid of it, but he should get rid of it because it's totally bad for you and it's going to turn you into a wraith, right? I mean, there's a total, there's like, should be a surgeon general's warning on that ring, right? It's really bad for you. So you need to get rid of it. Um, so now instead of the happy go lucky bingo that we had at the beginning of today's class, right? The like, uh, you know, home behind the world ahead, cheerful bingo right now, he has a burden that he's trying to get rid of, right? It's now become a much more serious situation for him. But it's not serious for the world yet. Still has no impact on anybody else but Bingo. And it's not just now a question of the Lord of the Rings is coming after him, but he's got to somehow find a way to get himself free of the ring. That seems to be where we are ending up um, at the end of this, right? Um, But notice the other things that we can conclude from this. Um... Nobody knows where he's going, right? Um, Remember, again, in the published text, Gandalf is going to say, you must set out either east, west, south, or north, but the direction should certainly not be known. The uncertainty of the direction of where Frodo goes in the published text is purely for concealment purposes, right? Don't let on which direction you're heading. Here, Gandalf says almost the same thing, but he has no idea. You've got to go some way. Well, where should it be? No clue, right? Because there's no destination in mind. There's no place that he has to... He's got to find a way to get rid of the ring. But who knows how or where he's going to do that. And so then Gandalf has the brainwave. Hey, Rivendell. And for, what, the third, fourth time, we're now going to Rivendell. Rivendell is always... He's like the manifest destiny of Bingo is that he's going to go to Rivendell, right? Uh, It's just like we're changing the reasons of why we're going to Rivendell again and again. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, you're right, Ben, there's no fiery mountain, definitely no Mordor. There's, there's, there's no hint of that. There's no need for it, right? This ring doesn't need to be destroyed. I mean, it's not going to do any harm. As long as he can get rid of it, it's not going to do any harm to anybody else. I mean, I guess if he throws it away and some other poor sap finds it, that'd be bad. But still, I mean, it's not, um, it's, this is not a, it's, it's not a, a cataclysmic issue, Right. But I just noticed something else. If going to Rivendell is going towards danger and yet not too rashly or too straight towards it, where's the danger? I don't think it's I mean, is it in the east? Um, Not too rashly, nor too straight. Maybe. Maybe it's in the east. But but I don't know. Is it in Mirkwood? No, it can't be Mirkwood, because the necromancer's out of Mirkwood, right? And we haven't heard that he's come back. It's definitely not west. Could it still be in the north, the danger? I don't know. Um, not too straight towards it suggests that the danger isn't to the east of the Shire. Because if it were, then going to Rivendell would be going straight towards it, right? Not all the way, right? But, but, but straight, right? Um, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Ben. We can rule out the West. It's totally not. In, it's definitely not in the West. That's kind of all we know. I'm just, I'm, of course, I'm still thinking of the of the the um, the north of the Shire, right, where Frodo met the Black Rider before. Um, so yes, carry good. At least it's not between Rivendell and the Shire, right? Yeah, fortunately, they don't have they don't have too much to worry about between Rivendell and the Shire, right? Fortunately, but um, um, we end this class almost the same way we ended the last class with. Uh, Tolkien still clearly having no idea where he's going, <laughs> right? Um, we figured out a bunch of stuff, right? We now have an antagonist, and we have the, the these black riders have appeared, and we now know some stuff about them. We, we've identified their ring wraiths, and they got dominated by they got uh, overcome by rings. They passed through rings in some probably not literal sense, um, and uh, so and we yeah we Diego, you're right. We have, we have a plot. Sort of. Well, at least we have a premise, right? He has a dangerous ring. Uh, you know, he has like this dangerously radioactive ring and he's got to get rid of it. He's got to free himself from it. He's under a curse. He's discovered he's under a curse, right? And he's got to somehow get free of this curse. But how? Where? We don't know. Tolkien doesn't know, right? Um, so we still are kind of now in the air and what next? Um Let's head to Rivendell, which is where we've been going all along, right? Remember, we're going to meet, uh, you know, probably strong chance of meeting Tom Bombadil along the way. All right, so I finished all of my slides, and I will bet you not a single one of you bet that I was going to get through 18 slides tonight. And my victorious, the victorious consequence of this is that we're only one class behind and not more than one. So there we go. I feel like I've accomplished a very great deal. So next time, we're going to talk about chapters four and five, which I know in theory is what we were supposed to be talking about today. But that's okay. Um, <laughs> we're, still, we're, we're, we're doing fine. I'm not going to worry about it too much. Um, we'll talk about four and five next time. So make sure to read or, or, or to, uh, to look over that again uh, for next time. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. And uh, I will talk to you guys. We'll see you guys next week for chapters four and five and see if we can figure out uh, where we're going uh, next time. That'll, that, that'll be fun. So thanks, everybody. Bye now. Good night.